everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing, and very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show. In the case of this month's guest, Megan Lamb, she was recommended to me by M. Kitchell, so if you like this episode, go back and listen to that one, and if you already have listened to that one, you'll enjoy this one. Megan Lamb is the author of Coward, Failure to Thrive, Apocalypse Party 2021, All of Your Most Private Places, Spork Press 2020, and Silk Flowers, Birds of Lace 2017. She served as the Philip Roth Writer-in-Residence at Bucknell University in 2018, and has led creative workshops at the University of Chicago, Utvush Laran University in Hungary, Interlaken Center for the Arts, and Washington University in St. Louis. Her work has appeared in Quarterly West, Diagram, Rediver, and Passages North, among other publications, and she currently serves as the nonfiction editor of Nat Brute, a Whiting Award-winning journal of art and literature dedicated to advancing inclusivity in all creative fields. Before I get into my conversation with Megan, I want to remind you that you can become a patron at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. Everybody who donates $2 or more a month gets early access to all of these episodes. You can also give me a one-time donation at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you can buy my book. It's called Tired, and it's on Amazon. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Megan. One of the things that hit me about Failure to Thrive is um, that it is structured sort of like... um, uh, the fifth head of Cerberus, um, the um, Gene Wolfe set of novellas that is really a novel, um, which is which is also sort of like I think a, a Asimov arc that was like three novellas as a novel, and and this idea that it it's all in the same town and it's all these isolated lives that sort of crisscross uh, and ultimately tell a, a bigger picture of um, of people who have had their like not necessarily their lives but like their potential or or opportunity um just kind of stolen from them either by the town or by things that are like symptoms of the town um and it 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 it's like a so it's like this piece about a place um but also individual character studies. Um, and I like that layering. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of um, uh, different stuff in the book being like a symptom of the place. Um, as I was uh, in the latter stages of uh, finishing up this book, uh, well, I'll, I'll maybe get to um, the background of why I was where I was uh, and my background with the, the real place itself that Failure to Thrive is based on. But um, I was actually teaching a, a place, a, a class on writing place with the University of Chicago. Um, so it was, um, yeah, and a lot of the class revolved around um, how everything in a narrative um, is a symptom of place or can be seen as a symptom of place in a sense. Um, Like the perspectives that characters have, um, the things that they notice or don't notice, the things that change or don't change. Um, And yeah, the kind of, the whole arc is like based around um, perspectives that are kind of like cast in uh, the 
aura of the of the place. Um, but yeah, I, um, I I I love that phrase symptoms too specifically because like um, I part of what fascinated me about the place of the novel or like the place that it's based on is um, that. Uh, like there's kind of like an environmental illness or like an illness that pervades the atmosphere of the place that uh, seems to like seep into the people who live there, particularly like the people who have lived there all their lives and have no designs on leaving or the people who maybe want to leave but feel like they're stuck there. Um, and yeah, I definitely like that's something that I've, thought of in layers and like had been thinking of like what that means in general in a place even before I discovered the Pennsylvania coal region but um, from my first visit to the area um, I was just so like there's just this atmosphere like this like thickness to the atmosphere uh, that really sits with you and like gets in your bones um, and I just couldn't stop thinking about like what it might be like to live there specifically as like a young person um, who's had a very different experience of the place from their elders who uh, have an understanding of the place based on like past generations and kind of the bygone glory days of the place. Right. So yeah, let's, let's talk about um, the book has photographs in it of the places that are referenced in the book as well as just other places from around that town. Um, how did you come to that place and how long were you there? Um, uh, yeah, it, it's complicated too, cause it's not like I was like there for a stable period of time. I was there and not there uh, in increments. Uh, and it, it feels like a liminal space or like it's a the period in which I was actually like physically there was liminal, but um, I was mentally there or like touching back there um, when I wasn't physically there in the long term. Um, but I first came to the space, um, my ex, well, soon to be ex-husband's family, um, uh, not his like immediate family, but um, his mother's family is from the area, um, and he grew up visiting uh, Pottsville and um, Cole Township, where his mother was from, and a couple other towns in the area. The, um, the town in the book is actually an amalgam of a number of uh, towns that I visited um, on and off that uh, either had some connection to his family history or... Um, we just like drove through on the way to other places that uh, he had some connection with that um, I in turn developed my own connection with. But um, so that was how when, when we first uh, got together, um, he uh, drove me through um, kind of the towns that his family was from to just show them to me or like give me a sense of them. Um, and it was like, late January, no, early February, not that it matters, um, but there was just like uh, 
this thick snow over everything and these uh, mountains with like these bare starved trees and like these slag piles running up the mountains. Um, and like uh, a lot of the buildings are either from like the heyday of the towns in the 1880s or um, like the 1950s and 60s um, kind of like uh, the last time when the coal industry was really like uh, in its heyday. Um, but there's all these like uh, sea foam and like mint colored uh, panels. Uh, there was something really striking about like seeing all of this like sea foam colored like uh, fading away uh, siding and uh, fixtures on the buildings uh, amidst all this snow. And also all of these um, steeples of the um, Ukrainian and Lithuanian uh, churches. Um, I describe them a lot in the book, but uh, they really do look like these strange golden and copper crowns like rising up um, out of all of this snow and soot and uh, just decay everywhere. Um, but yeah, like there, there are a lot of things that are striking about the towns like this, but um, one of them is uh, like a lot of them have graveyards that uh, are going like all the way to the top of the mountain. Um, and the towns will almost be like in little bowls or like the graveyard will be like framing the town. Um, so, and, and this is another thing that I describe in the book, but um, it looks like the graveyard is like sinking in or like threatening to collapse on the top of people who are still living there. and. Mm -hmm. Um, definitely like from my experience uh, revisiting and revisiting that place like it felt like an apt visual metaphor for what probably feels like the sensation of living there um, but yeah there are all these graveyards and there are also all of these like uh, white clapboard buildings uh, that the coal trucks drive by and there's just like this accumulation of soot all over them um, but it's Another interesting thing about the towns is like if you look on them like from a height, like from the top of one of the mountains or like as you're just driving through, um, they look almost like beautiful, like Thomas Kincaid type towns. Like uh, there's like um, there's a certain like. Uh, yeah, they're, they're they're beautiful towns from a distance and like in a strange way up close, but like. Uh, like they look really pristine, like when you see the snow and you see like little uh, bits of sea foam and uh, just little bits of things from a distance. But um, when you get closer and closer, um, you see a lot of decay. Uh, you see this um, rusty trickle of a creek that the locals uh, actually refer to as shit creek that kind of like runs through everything. That's um, like a a mix of all sorts of things, I guess, that are coloring it. But it, it's rusty at some points, and it's almost like neon orange at other points from some, some sort of like toxic runoff. Um, but uh, there's there's the shit creek, and then there's all just like uh, houses that have like eternally have uh, like Christmas decorations on them from like the 1970s that are like rotting away. Um, <laughs> it, 
but like just things like that. Um, and there are also, oh, um, so the uh, cover of the book uh, with this sign um, comes from uh, these signs that are on a lot of the houses in the towns. Um, it's actually like a signal uh, to first responders. Um, there's so much asbestos, like there's so much like uh, toxic material in this house. If it starts burning down, don't go inside, just let it burn. Um, and some, some towns have more of these than others, but like Shimokin, Pennsylvania is like just filled with these signs. Um, it's also filled with signs, um, which I also reference in the book that say uh, danger, oxygen in use, uh, kind of signaling like there are a lot of sick people inside these houses. Uh, but yeah, I, um, but yeah, oh, and if you asked about um, how I came to live there or how long I lived there. Um, so um, my, my ex-husband's uh, mother uh, lived not in the coal region, but um, in Palmyra, Pennsylvania, um, which is like a 40-ish minute drive from the coal region. Um, and a number of times when we'd be staying with her, like uh, we just go visit um, uh, just to take photos. Um, he was a photographer and filmmaker. Um, and I'm, uh, as you can see from the end of the book, more of an amateur photographer and filmmaker. I'll maybe talk about those photos more specifically in a minute. But um, yeah, so it started out like we were just kind of like, uh, visiting the place out of curiosity and for various creative projects. Um, and then uh, after my MFA program in uh, 2018, I got the Philip Roth um, residency. I had already started uh, working on uh, the project of failure to thrive, or at least the first part, not quite knowing what it would bring or if it was going to be just all um, Emily, Olivia, and David's story, uh, or if I was going to incorporate other stories of people in the town that's an amalgam of various coal towns. Um, but uh, I, yeah, so uh, I, I got the Philip Roth, um, the Philip Roth writing residency at Bucknell University, which is like kind of just on the fringes of the coal region. Um, so I was there for four months while I was working on the book and it was really instrumental to the writing of the book because I could actually go to the coal region every day. Um, and I continued working on it after that, but um, was kind of stuck for a while or going back and forth from it. Um, and then uh, a lot of things happened. Like I moved to like, uh, God, like six different places between 2018 uh, and 2020. But um, to make a very long story short, uh, in 2020, I was uh, in Sombate in Hungary, uh, teaching at a branch campus of Utrecht-Lorend University. And uh, it was, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty bleak year of my life. Um, I, I was thinking a lot about this book and I was thinking a lot about uh, 
strange resonances between living in the coal region and feeling stuck and uh, living in Hungary uh, in a marriage that was falling apart and feeling stuck. Um, and then the pandemic happened and I, I was literally afraid that I would be stuck in Hungary um, as Viktor Orban uh, declared uh, indefinite rule by decree. And uh, we were kind of afraid that Hungary was becoming a dictatorship and we really needed to uh, go back to the US. Um, but after we went back to the US um, and I was quarantining uh, in this weird little house in Michigan that my uh, parents had recently bought. I'd actually never seen it before, um, but we needed some place to quarantine. We had planned to be in Europe for another year or possibly longer. So we didn't have any any plans for moving back to the US. So we, we just kind of had to make this emergency quarantine in this house that my parents owned that I had never seen before. Um, they just met us at the airport in Chicago and handed off the keys and we drove there and we kind of like got into this house and we felt like weird squatters for the couple of months that we were there, like figuring out the next steps. Um, yeah, a, a lot of other things happened. Uh, I don't know if there's even like a succinct way to explain like what transpired after that, but um, I left my husband uh, and uh, for lack of better place to move back to, um, we'd been talking about possibly moving to the coal region to work on various projects and for me to finish my book. So um, I moved back to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, where Bucknell is located and um, just continued to finish the book there. Uh, kind of in a way picking up where I left off, but in a very different situation with a very different perspective. Um, and that kind of informed the third section too, uh, where there's a lot of stuff going on, but um, kind of that uncanniness of going back to a place that you never necessarily had any plans to go back to, but um, for whatever reason, you're kind of like, forced back into it um, and everything's the same but also like at the same time totally transformed in your imagination because you have been elsewhere and you're kind of like going back to that place um, and seeing it in a new light <laughs> but yeah I that I just gave you a lot of convoluted information I I don't know if I answered your question in full uh, because uh, yeah, there there are a lot of like layers and subterritories of that question, but I'll maybe leave it to you. Like, uh, what else you're curious about from that? Absolutely, yeah, that was that was a good answer. You're going back to the to the coal region and having that sort of inform the third part is, is interesting because that's his story is is sort of what I was thinking about when I talk about like the symptoms, right? Because Jack gets in a car accident in Ohio um, and that like pulls him back, right? So like you can't really blame drunk drivers in Ohio on uh, on, on the coal region necessarily, right? Like, um, but that sort of like the desperation that leads somebody to 
drive under the influence of alcohol to like get to the point in in their problems with drinking that they either don't know when it's not okay to drive or think that it is okay to drive is like i think indicative of like any sort of region in the midwest has has cells of that kind of dotting around especially in in michigan and ohio and how there's something poetic to me about like the idea of a coal mine or a coal pit and how it just kind of like sucks people and things back into it um i'm i think about like emile zola's germinal and how like the the coal mine um is like the source of a lot of problems but but also like not directly uh you know like the people who own the coal mine are the source of problems that make the coal mine itself represent problems um and and something i think is mirrored in uh jack's and olivia's experience how there are these two people who like don't even really know what's going on anymore um that i really like to read i really like to read those those kinds of characters that like live in a world that is recognizable to me but is unrecognizable to them or uh, unable to be recognizable for whatever reason um and how like it's not deliberately said that the failure to thrive that olivia suffers from is is necessarily coal related um but for somebody like me it's it's quite easy to to immediately blame it on like oh yeah that's that's almost certainly something uh ecological or or at least the symptom of like the town dying so that david and emily can't get a hold of the care that is needed prenatally and then postnatally um yeah definitely and that that's definitely part of how i uh hoped it would be read as um yeah like a symptom of the place like uh um where where the failure to thrive like uh internally of uh the people who live in the place uh mirrors and uh is like kind of a seepage of the failure to thrive of the place itself. Um, the, the failure to kind of like resurrect itself uh, with the dying of the town's industry and, um, or it, various industries. Um, and that was something that I really wanted to come across in the book too, um, is that it wasn't just the um, coal in that area, um, there was a thriving textile industry and even uh, like uh, Shimokin, uh, Pennsylvania, like Edison, uh, I believe it was actually the first uh, town in Pennsylvania that um, Edison installed electric light in. Hmm. But like these places have, um, and and that's part of why there are such beautiful old resplendent buildings in these places is um, they, they used to be thriving places and now now they are failing to thrive um and yeah i'm i'm really i'm glad that that was the sensation that you had yeah um i i i um 
I have, uh, I don't know. I get, I keep thinking of the memes that, that like make fun of the people who blame everything on capitalism. And so I try to think beyond (laughs) that, but all, you know, all I can think about is like, yeah, those places were awesome. Um, and great places to live at one point in time. And then industry just decided it was done with those places and moved away. Um, the the seafoam green especially um i watch a a youtube channel called the proper people and they go to abandoned buildings and abandoned theme parks and things like that abandoned power plants they really like and you know they go into these abandoned power plants from the 20s 30s 40s 50s and like these giant generators are just painted seafoam green or they go to abandoned hospitals or or mental facilities and everything is this this calming green and the fact that nothing is that color anymore unless it's specifically a callback to that time is like makes that color which is this very soothing and at one time probably considered a neutral color to mean something very opposite um and the fact that like art deco or streamline modern um architecture now represents decay as opposed to opulence yeah. is uh wild to me like very very hard to grip um and i think the use of of color in in the book is um just kind of useful in that way especially in in the first part where olivia's is thinking about all the different kinds of colors that the sky is um i just i very much enjoyed that you made sure to like point to those things and in the book uh, resonated with me quite hard yeah i i'm so glad that you uh appreciated the the different references to color and kind of like this uh, seafoam green palette. Um, way back when, when I was uh, in my MFA workshop and uh, people were reading uh, early pages of this first part of the novel. Um, uh, and it, it's maybe telling of the privilege of a lot of people in MFA programs like Washington University, but um, there were people even in the program who are from Pennsylvania who would say things in the workshop like, um, is this a, is this an imaginary town? Like, uh, it seems like you've created like an uncanny, impossible place. Like Hmm. there aren't really places that exist like this, that are like this poor that also have this much, uh, opulence or like at one time opulence. Um, but but people really connected with the seafoam green or I, I think that was actually part of why like they experienced it as an uncanny space mm-hmm. um which is hard because like i i wanted it to feel a bit uncanny or like this layered uncanniness uh i definitely felt a certain uncanniness myself with a seafoam green but um i also very much wanted people to feel like this was the real place or uh a mix of real places, a potentially real place. Um, and I guess that was part of the ethos of why I wanted to include the photos at the end um, as kind of like proof that this is a real place or that the things that I describe in the book are 
real things that exist in places like this and that they aren't just uh, contrivances of my uh, dark imagination. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I know you were on Wake Island Pod and uh, I mean, David Rice deals with the uncanny an awful lot and I think that and I'm not one who spends an awful lot of time in like the seedier places of, of impoverished America myself. So, so I can't speak from too much of a position of like snark or, or enlightened <laughs> superiority over those types of people. But, um, like there is something to that where if you walk around places that are poor or even places that are just like rural, um, and old, there is an element of like how is this like this like it doesn't it doesn't make sense that like why is there why are there these old rundown bars right next to dow gardens you know like how is this possible um just from like a logical standpoint not even like a sociological sort of thing just like it doesn't work in my brain that these two things should butt up against each other the way that they do if you don't yeah live there you know no and that's definitely something that that i felt like the first couple times i visited the area but just continued to feel more and more um as i was a resident uh when i lived at bucknell uh and when i was a slightly more long-term resident the second time I moved to Lewisburg, just the sensation of like, how is this there still? And like, how is it real? Um, and yeah. Although at the same time, like there are all of these like falling down structures that have like this uh, history to them that um, like, as you learn the history, um, like you still have the sensation of like, why is this still here? Like when it's like literally falling apart, like there was this uh, dress factory, the Schroyer's dress factory that I kind of allude to in the novel um, where it was kind of like situated like up this like really steep slope of a hill um, and the paneling of the front of the factory um, was just like bowing out like almost in like an hmm. arc like and every time i would go by it like it was like bowing more and more and more like separating more and more from the building um and like there was a street like right underneath this factory where like cars would be parked and like houses were all around it like <laughs> and there's just like this place that's like falling apart to the point that like the outside is like divorcing itself from the inside um it, eventually like the Boeing did fall off um and it like fell on one of the power lines on the street and it, like it knocked out the power it was actually like uh Thanksgiving uh when that happened and there was like a news story about like all the families being like what am I gonna do I, mm. I can't put turkey in the oven <laughs> um after that or shortly after that it was torn down um and part of me thought like well obviously that was inevitable like it was falling apart like it knocked out the power but like i was also very sad um but yeah it it's strange how like that sense of like 
how is this here? How is this real? How does this exist? Uh, only deepens as you develop a deeper intimacy with the place and like what things are and what they used to be. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's something that you can also like, you can see in a more layered way or in a different way if you are an outsider of the place and you don't have relatives that like worked at the dress factory or you weren't one of the families whose power was knocked out on Thanksgiving. Right. Um, but yeah, I I liked what you were saying too about like the like the kind of like colossal or like majestic quality of like the old buildings or like the the repetition of the sea foam color. Um, another notable building or structure that was torn down uh, in the space of writing this novel. Um, that I, I don't think I allude to in the actual pages, but like just found myself going back to over and over again as a kind of like touchstone for my sensation of the space uh, was this um, giant coal breaker in Mahanoy City. Um, it's called the St. Nicholas Coal Breaker. Um, if you Google it, you'll find tons of images of it, but it, it was just, colossally huge it almost looks like a city or like a like mm. it it looks like a building like in a city but it almost it almost looks like a like its own block like it's just enormous and amazing um and i i had the luck of being able to visit this coal breaker twice um on holidays when uh the um mining that was going on uh in the area like around it uh was at a stall because it was the holidays um but i got to see uh like look up into the old breaker uh which looks like the cistern of hell or like the eye of a storm or something um and like i got to see um like it, it was really eerie actually there, like there's still like workman boots and stuff like detritus of people who worked there like scattered around the place like literally like sticking out of the muck um and there were these uh like um time punch cards from workers like back in the 60s and the 50s that like still had the dates and like names and everything on them and they were just like scattered around and the muck and the snow and whatever all else was in the sludge in there. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely recommend uh, looking up the St. Nicholas Coal Breaker if you have a fascination with the detritus. Um, on the second time we went there, we actually got to see like, it was torn down very gradually, I guess, as is often the case with something that huge that maybe they don't have the money to pull down all at once. Um, but the second time we went there, uh, the whole structure was like kind of leaning to its side. And there were these like huge tangles of metal, like all around it, uh, like the the tangles of what it once was were like slowly consuming the structure as a whole. It was really incredible. Um, but yeah, speaking of meandering, like mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's hard not to meander thinking of these things. Yeah. But yeah, definitely under the umbrella of like 
how is this real? Yeah, there, there's something so strange about abandoned structures. How it just, it does seem like, wow, people just really just disappeared from this space. Like, um, and going back to the proper people, like when they go through hospitals, there's there's HIPAA violations everywhere. There's just boxes of patient records just sitting there. Like nobody thought to take the patient records when you left the building. It's really just so many buildings are like somebody just turned the lights off and nobody ever came back. And, um, you know, some of these towns are like that too, right? Like absolutely, the, the yeah. cold barons just turned the lights off and nobody ever came back except there's still people in, in, in the place. It's like when you're a kid playing in the basement and, and your, your parents forget that you're down there and they're like, why are the lights in the basement? on? <laughs> just turn the lights off. And you're like, well, now what do I do now? I'm in the basement and the lights are off and it's scary. Um, pivoting just a little bit I, I marked a couple passages um during the olivia portion of of the book because um when she's sucking on her fingers and it gets um there's like a synesthesia quality to the description um that is just that is just an element of writing that i adore and i love it every time it happens every time i see it i, I think it's impossible to do it poorly um and I'm so glad that you did it. Um, oh, I'm so glad that you appreciated that. I don't think anyone's mentioned that like synesthesia quality before, but that's definitely something I was hoping to cultivate. Um, and I, um, I used to work uh, for almost a decade with uh, people with um, intellectual um, and developmental disabilities in different capacities. Um, I worked in a number of different group homes and a bunch of different places. And I was a vocational counselor and a vocational and day program director for a while. But um, the, the sucking on the hand, um, like that particular tick um, was based on a kid in one of the group homes that I used to work at who um, like he that was one of his ticks and like his hand was like all raw and um like uh his skin was cracked and peeling and uh like uh there were all kinds of symptoms as a result of sucking on the hand but like no one seemed to have a good solution for it and they just put these blue gloves on his hands hmm. um so he wouldn't suck them but i was like that kind of seems like a violation of like his uh His, his right to, um, like, do with his body what he will, or, like, um, I, I don't know. Like, it's, it, it feels like a real, like, uh, infiltration of someone's humanity <laughs> to say, like, you can't put your hand in your mouth because you're harming your hand, so I'm just going to decide that you need to have a glove on your hand. Um, but I... I would actually, and, and part of the, like, it was of course, like difficult after a while to tell like what, which aspects of the harm coming to his hand are coming from him sucking on his hand, which aspects are coming from the fact that like there's moisture or like, um, and like you're putting a glove like directly onto it. Yeah. Um, like 
but I, if I was like alone or like I was working and I didn't have other people around me who are going to uh, yell at me, I would, I would take the gloves off and mm. I just let him suck his hands. Um, but yeah, I, I think ticks like that are really interesting and particularly the way we pay attention to things that people with disabilities do that are also things that we maybe do or like we do a version of this like kind of self-soothing behavior or repetitive bodily behavior ourselves um but it's like magnified or um I think a lot of the times when people respond like by just putting the blue glove on the hand or like saying like don't do that you're harming yourself like how much of that is like concern for the person and how much of that is like some weird projection of like this is something I do or this is something that's inside of me that I'm seeing magnified in this other person and I don't want to look at it's making me uncomfortable um right yeah like it seems strange to just stop the self-soothing rather than trying to work to redirect it to something more constructive or less destructive um i, I don't know that seems obvious to me but i i don't know you know i don't i don't know how those places work i don't know how overburdened everybody who works there is and i, I can imagine getting to a point where you're just trying to stop bad things yeah. from happening rather than trying to fix problems because of a whole host of reasons um hmm. <laughs> um and we haven't really talked about the second portion of the book but i i found that interesting too i i i'm aware of the thickened liquid as as a thing that some people need um i used yeah. to listen to a podcast where they tried it on the air because they were doing a bit for a, a long period of time where they were trying weird food and so they tried some thickened liquid and one of the guys just couldn't handle it just like whatever he it's couldn't swallow fuck. it yeah um and I, i've never had it but i think i yeah I, the it it does taste like it's the consistency of honey but it's like a weird it's not like gritty but like you can taste the well not taste you, you can feel the granules um but yeah it you can sort of feel the granules i don't know how much of it is because you know they're there mm. um and how much of it is uh like actually like the texture but it it's a really hard to describe texture, but like it, yeah, it, it, it's, I, the way I describe it in the book where like, it's kind of a mind fuck because like, it's like the consistency of honey, but it isn't sweet. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of like how I felt about it. And it, yeah, it, it just, it makes everything taste a little bit wrong. Um, even though it doesn't necessarily have that much of a taste like um tasting like fruit punch that's been thickened uh like even though it's still like sweet flavor wise like um i don't know it it troubles your expectations of what that thing is supposed to be like in a really profound way 
it's almost like uh, those jelly beans that you can get like from mm. psychological experiments where you have like a black licorice jelly bean that's in a pink casing or something. <laughs> it just messes with you. Um, but yeah, the, the thick and liquid was also based on personal experience. Um, I worked for a while as uh, an in-home uh, caregiver as a CNA and I uh, would, I spent a lot of time, I, I had a lot of personal intimacy with a uh, thickening liquid mm. uh, and I, just one day I thought to try it myself <laughs> and it was, it was definitely strange. <laughs> um, I think I had it with a peanut butter sandwich too, that oh. had like crunchy peanut butter and like the, the sensation of like the peanut butter sticking to my palate and the liquid not really being liquid was really messed up. <laughs> mm, I, ugh. Yeah. I can see how somebody wouldn't like that over time no. i guess it didn't occur to me too that you would have to do that with food um and i don't know i guess i'd probably just just go uh and do soylent do you remember that that was like a big craze like five six yeah. years ago i would oh probably just God. stick to that and just thicken that and just be <laughs> some sort of weird future man with my f nutrient paste and did you ever try it yeah yeah, I I was working at a place where sometimes we were doing, I don't know, contractor-esque work, even though we weren't contractors. We were doing a lot of drywalling and like framing and things like that. And sometimes stopping for lunch was just like not in the cards. So we would just have a cup of that. But um, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it. if you've ever had like protein powder with mm -hmm. milk and, and didn't stir it up very well, it was just just like that it was nothing special aside from the fact that you could get 1200 calories or whatever in a glass and and continue about your day it doesn't um, sound so bad no yeah, it wasn't probably. because it's like its own thing and it's not like a weird simulacrum of some other thing that doesn't taste like that thing right exactly i while i was doing that job i met a guy from australia who's like yeah for the past two years it's just been breakfast lunch and dinner for me i've just been doing that i get all my nutrients never really cared about food before anyway uh i get like an extra three hours of my day because i don't have to prepare food anymore and crikey uh and he, he was a very interesting guy but it i don't know like i can't imagine trying to like do that to a steak or something you know the the sort of tether throughout the arc of that part of the story is ice cream and you know the the idea of trying to use a food memory to make yourself feel okay while not being able to get to it just seems quite painful yeah and that um that particular ice cream um it's basically like vanilla ice cream with um bits of like bittersweet chocolate, like the bittersweet cooking chocolate um, that's been shredded up into these little flecks. So it's kind of like chocolate chip ice cream, but like bittersweet chocolate and the flecks are like, um, almost like when you have like a really fine grated like cheese grater and mm. like uh, it's almost like little like teensy bits of Parmesan, like 
it's those kind of teensy bits of uh, bittersweet chocolate blended in vanilla. So it it has a very distinct texture. Um, and like, I can only imagine like what a disappointment it would be to like crave like that particular flavor of like the bitterness and the sweetness and like not be able to like uh, taste like the texture of the little flecks uh, because you have to like blend it all together. And in that, in that part of the story, I particularly enjoyed how Helen like desperately didn't want people to see her um, to either like know that she was still there or that I, I guess I didn't quite pick up on exactly like what what it was, but I also like totally get that. Like, if I, I was walking around my hometown and saw somebody I knew from high school, I would definitely like duck behind the nearest shelf if I was in the grocery store or something. Um, and when you compare that to Olivia, who's who's just kind of there and doesn't really have too much of a relationship to the place. Um, and then to the third story where he gets pulled back um, and then sort of like reaccepted into his friend group, but like so many years later and kind of like not really. Um, I've, I found Helen's story to um, hit in a, in, a, in a unique way that, I think maybe I could identify with the most, um, at least in terms of her like relationship to where she's from. If that makes sense. Yeah. I I can't remember what it, at some point when I was living at Bucknell, um, I read this Dorothy Allison essay on place um, that I ended up uh, teaching from in my uh, writing place class with University of Chicago, but. Um, in the essay, she talks about place as not just being like setting or like wallpapering of a place, but the whole, um, your perception of how you fit into the place and how the place observes you or ignores you. Um, like, does the place notice you or do you feel noticed hmm. in, do you want to feel noticed or do you feel uncomfortable with the idea of being noticed? Um, and that idea of being noticed by the place or like having an awareness of being noticed was something that I thought about a lot when I was writing that section in particular. Um, and definitely in their own individual ways, all of the different sections, but um, I'm really glad that that's a tension that, that resonated with you um, because that was definitely, um, I would say of all of the, all of the characters in the different sections, I, I aligned with her most closely as well. And yeah, like the the thing or like kind of part of the reason she doesn't want to be noticed is um, it's kind of, it's very beneath the surface, like insinuated that uh, she used to have uh, like an addiction to the opioids that she would give to her clients mm -hmm. um, while she was working as a caregiver. And that's part of the reason she was fired but it happened like so long ago in the distant past. And uh, she's kind of like used that as an excuse or maybe not necessarily an excuse, but like she's been kind of hiding behind her own shame related to that. And 
maybe like there were some other things going on with her personality or like how she saw herself within the place, how the place noticed her, um, that uh, her long ago addiction or like her hiding from that was kind of just like a scrim for those other things. Um, and I, I kind of wanted there to be that sensation. Um, so the fact that you didn't necessarily know why or didn't notice why was almost like fitting in its <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, successful. Yeah, I, I, I guess I can see the hints now. Um, But yeah, I, I think, I think that's definitely, um, I didn't want anything in the book to be like an allegory or like a metaphor for something, but, um, I think in a lot of ways, uh, her relationship with her own previous addiction, uh, kind of mirrors the ways, um, a lot of people in these towns, uh, perceive the issue of opioid addiction or the, the presence of addiction. Um, I think there's maybe even it could be said to be like a, a certain tendency to, um, like when people don't want to look at the decay of the towns in other ways or like um, they, they want to like acknowledge like things are different than they used to be. Um, but they don't want to think like, oh, this isn't something that we can come back from. This is like the product of industry in the area dying and like knowing ha no one having jobs or no one having uh, potential for uh, certain kinds of a future. Um, I, I think people have a tendency to like uh, blame the decay on the drugs or like blame the change on the drugs. Um, uh, the, the drugs themselves are kind of like a scrim for other uh deeper illnesses i think um and and it's interesting too like a, a lot of the doctors in the area and like i even like saw some news stories or some stories percolating through the news while i was at bucknell um there was a, a doctor i think in mount carmel who um was arrested or um uh for and like a lot of people said he was like really like genuinely like well-intended like he he was over prescribing opioids and like people were uh becoming addicted to them uh but um he had a lot of clients that genuinely needed them and um like yeah it, it's a very fine line i think between uh like things that you take for illness and uh things that you take uh to self-medicate for some deeper illness um, and that that all comes back to the the deeper illness of the place itself um, but yeah i i think the there's definitely i i didn't want her section or like anything uh going on with uh her former addiction in the section to be like an allegory for how the towns deal with uh the overlapping issues of illness and addiction but um I think there's definitely something to be said for that tendency to like turn away or uh and also like hide behind it simultaneously in a weird way yeah i you know like little kids will ask why incessantly until you get to like 
well the the universe exists because what else would there be i guess you know as as to like why are shovels shaped like that and you get you get there right and and i feel like we would do well as a people to do more of that incessant why asking right because why is the town dying because of drugs and it's like okay well that's you know that's not a bad answer certainly if people are addicted to drugs they're probably not doing their jobs very well or maybe they don't have jobs and if they don't have jobs or aren't doing their jobs very well then they're probably stealing to get food because they can't afford it or stealing to uh have things to sell to get drugs or whatever but like not going beyond you know but why are there drugs why are people doing drugs is preventing us from finding the answer to that and then you know helping people not get on drugs in the first place um right if people are like the covid pandemic is 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 very kind of useful for that right because it's like well opioid deaths are going up why is that well because people felt hopeless in the depths of um you know the early 2020s because of covid it's like great like let's move beyond that or at least use that to apply to like oh maybe people outside of a pandemic are turning to drugs because they feel hopeless and you know just because we don't have an easy answer to why do people feel hopeless is uh you know something that people who are in power should consider um as the soviet union national anthem starts playing in the back of my head um and so I, I think it's useful in the book that like we don't really get to even really get to questioning that part right there's there's that weird push and pull of of these areas and and any sort of like people who are really suffering because of capitalism that like it's it's weird to like point to the root causes of their problems as a person Mm -hmm. who's not you know experiencing that i just watched an episode of atlanta where um some rich white dude is like asking one of the characters who's black where where like his ancestry is from and he's like guessing and the guy's like i don't know man like (laughs) this spooky thing called slavery happened and stole my cultural heritage and the guy's like exactly and it's like such an uncomfortable exchange um that it's hard for me i know that episode is that the one with the party yeah it's uh, the juneteenth episode uh, oh it hurts so bad (laughs) it's it's really good um there there's a lot of those moments where 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 i personally am like feeling very uncomfortable (laughs) it's like oh i'm 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 closer to that character than i'd like to be um and I feel like, you know, with something like Coal Country, like, I'm kind of like that, too. Like, you know, I can listen to Panopticon all I want, but I still don't actually understand, you know. I can listen to all the, all the old Union songs I want, but I'm like, it's it's really presumptive of me to be like, you know, if you guys would just vote Green Party, things would be a lot better for you. Uh, if Howie Hawkins had won the presidential election in 2020 we wouldn't even be having this discussion. Uh. Well, and I think part of the uncomfortable 
unfortunate reality is that uh, you want to have a prescribed solution or like something that's going to like save these areas and uh, people who live there certainly would like that too but I don't think there is one I, I don't think there's anything that's going to save them uh, so yeah I, as an outsider that's particularly unsettling um, well I was at Bucknell um, I actually uh, went on this um, it's like a, a bus trip um, where they have students from a couple different departments and teachers from a couple different departments that kind of gather together um, a couple times a year. And they take them through the coal region on kind of like a, like a blended like sociology, architecture, um, history, uh, like a lot of overlapping different departments and kind of like uh, use this tour as like an illustration of different things that they're talking about in the class. And uh, there's one guy from uh, like it's uh, like a department within a department within department like nesting doll situation, but it was like hmm. a, a department of place studies or like the, the class is something to do with place studies. Um, but he <laughs> um, there are a lot of good things to be said about this tour, but it was a it was a very strange tour to be on as um, someone who is an outsider of the area, but also like uh, had an intimacy or like knew certain things about the area that were uh, not being represented in the tour or were being distorted or were just plain inaccurate. Mm. Um, and then just like hearing some of the weird conversation or like the processing of what they were seeing and hearing going on uh, with the students that were in this group. Um, there was this really, really uncomfortable moment where um, we were in Sunbury, uh, which is kind of like uh, the town where the coal region kind of starts um, if you're driving there from Lewisburg and we were on the street uh, outside of the courthouse, uh, which is this beautiful 1880s Italianite building, um, like kind of in the center of town. And uh, the instructor, um, I'm sure his intentions were good, but uh, it was just like not a good look, like the way this came across. Like, so you have like this group of like 35, maybe 40 students like standing on the sidewalk outside the courthouse in downtown Sunbury. Um, and the instructor says like, um, so look up at all the beautiful buildings and hold your arm kind of like this. So you can't see what's at street level below like the trim and the roofs of the buildings. And like, imagine what it used to look like, uh, like in its heyday when these buildings were first built. So you have like this big group of a bunch of like young privileged Bucknell students who are holding their hands like over the lower part of their eyes and meanwhile there are people who live in this town that are trying to like cross by and get through on the sidewalk and they're just like they have to like walk out in the street because there are a bunch of uh, people in their early 20s who are looking but not looking at everything that's around them that they live within <laughs> Oh, 
<laughs> oh. Um. I, I, yeah, there. It's just. That's so, so funny to me, that I can't stop picturing it. I have to knock it out of my brain. I I think there there is a, a thing with, with like the well-intentioned people, the well-intentioned liberal or leftist people who like to kind of go around to 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 oppressed peoples of any stripe and and kind of shake them by the shoulders and say tell me how to save you and um oh yeah and that that was the thing that i forgot that i was building up to oh yeah go ahead. in the course of telling this story mm -hmm. uh, so at the end of the tour um uh there was um some kind of elder, I don't remember what his actual job title was, um, but he was someone affiliated with, um, well, I think he was affiliated with um, the Catholic Church in Mount Carmel, um, but he also ran like a volunteer program between like um, the city of Mount Carmel and um, Bucknell students, um, where he was kind of like, uh, like they, they work on different like community building projects, like they plant flowers, they clean up areas and whatnot. Um, but uh, he gave like this impassioned speech basically where he was like, um, it's easy to turn away from an area because of perceptions you have of like the illness or the addiction or like the, um, the decay that you see around you. Um, there, there's an evil in turning away. Um, and it, it was just like this impassioned plea, like you're from Bucknell. I know you're going to be moving on with your life in three years, but please help us <laughs> use your, your Bucknell resources or whatever you're getting over there and uh, pour a little of that our way. <laughs> um, and it, and like, so you're hearing this impassioned plea as people are eating their sandwiches in the basement of the church. And uh, then after the lunch and after the impassioned plea, uh, you hear the students like filing out and uh, the church bells ring. And one of them says, oh, this reminds me of the ski trip that I took in Switzerland last fall. <laughs> <laughs> These kids are not going to be helping you. <laughs> oh. I mean, maybe some of them will. Maybe that's a little unfair, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard to hear that. <laughs> it's hard to process uh, those kinds of layers of cognitive dissonance when you're not quite sure where you fit into the equation yourself. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I like that phrase. There's an evil in turning away. No, the I thought it was really striking too. Because I think, especially in, in in this corner of the writing world, Apocalypse Party, Inside the Castle, um, kind of at all, there is a taste for and a thirst for dark, edgy, grimy stuff. And um, I, think, I think sometimes it's worth it to like question, like, what are we really looking at? Like, you know, um, as, as overused as, as the opening scene of blue velvet 
is as a as an image to conjure up is now like i wonder if many of us are only looking at the last part of that scene right where it's just Mm -hmm. termites in the lawn and not the beginning of it and and the whole camera movement as a as a whole thing right like i think one of the things that i found successful about your book is that um it fits in 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 this corner right like it is at home in the apocalypse party roster um but doesn't like really revel in the the gutter right like the now that i've said gutter like twice i'm thinking of like the noir genre and like the 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 best noir stories are the ones that have their characters in there but isn't like about the gutter if that makes sense you know like yeah i i think it's worth it to write so-called transgressive or edgy or outsider literature and and certainly i have enough of it on my shelves and have written it myself um but like uh I, I think your book is could be and and is for me a good like recentering of you know why are we fascinated with skulls on our t-shirts or whatever you know <laughs> yeah I sorry if I'm distracted here my my cat has recently discovered how delicious um wires and <laughs> if you see a little uh a little tail uh, cropping up, it's because he keeps trying to chew on my headphone wires mm-hmm. um but uh yeah i'm 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 really uh gratified and uh thankful that you felt that way um when i was uh well really throughout the writing of this book um a couple different times uh, while I was writing this book, I revisited Owls Do Cry by Janet Frame, um, her first novel that um, uh, is about this place called Waimaru that's, um, a lot of it is autobiographical, but like uh, there are little bits and pieces that she fictionalizes. And I think of, um, uh, and it's based on the place where she grew up and it's based on a lot of her own family experiences. but I, it's also kind of like framing the place like um, from an outsider's perspective. Or there, there are le- these frame sections that are almost like, uh, you should come to Waimaru um, and you should uh, look at this um, tour guide that you can uh, find in the gift shop for. Uh, six pounds uh normally and uh at 650 over the holidays and a discount in the off seasons um and uh there are like these frame sections where she's talking about this place that she has obviously a real intimacy with and um that she really brings the reader into on an intimate uh like personal level um 
but she's playing a lot with like that back and forth between like bringing you like in these like super super like kind of unsettling close-ups of their lived reality um and these like panned back uh uh, you should visit sometime. These are the sights you might want to see. <laughs> After she's uh, describing the children, like looking for treasures in the junkyard uh, where one of the characters ends up uh, burning to death. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I don't want to have too many spoilers about Owls Do Cry, but there's an ending um, that similarly like pans back in a really interesting way where um, it's two characters that aren't even like within like the novel proper um, who own like a mill in the town who are like flipping through the paper and saying anyone we know in there and uh, like as they flip through the paper it almost like takes an inventory of all of these people that we've uh, come to know very closely and have become very dear to us, but like they're being reframed from the distanced vantage of uh, people who have like some peripheral connection to them, but who don't really know them. But I think like reading or rereading that book uh, is part of what inspired uh, in a way, like the idea of the frame sections um, of the different places that are kind of like decaying structures in and around uh, this town that is an amalgam of different actual towns. Um, but uh, like it's, it's a way of like seeing what people see, but from the vantage of an outsider, like taking an on this taking an honest inventory of my own like outsiderliness, like constructing the book itself, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I definitely had those frame sections of Owls Do Cry in mind. Um, and I think those frame sections are also kind of an interesting way of like, uh, like helping you feel the tragedy of the book or helping you feel pathos with the characters um, and not necessarily like stepping back when it becomes too overwhelming, but like, uh, I think they're a vehicle through which to both process what they're going through in the book from a distance, but also like kind of process like what these little microcosms of lived experience, uh, not what they mean in terms of the whole, but like, um, I don't know. Uh, I guess in the course of talking now, I was hoping I would have something profound to say about that back and forth, uh, aside from it's interesting, like uh, seeing people's lived realities from those different vantages. Um, I don't necessarily know that I've come up with a great thesis for what that does, but um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a sensation that I was hoping to replicate and definitely uh, I was hoping to replicate it from the standpoint of like experiencing the tragedy in layers and from different levels and vantages. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to uh, actually read from the sections that uh, don't feature people. Um, uh, aptly enough, I'm going to read from the sections that I was kind of gesturing to, those frame sections uh, 
with some of the places. You need to know what once was there or you will never notice anything. You'll likely just drive through it up the steep curve of the mountain on the new highway, not knowing there's an old highway, paint sprayed and cracked behind the trees that had to be abandoned. The whole thing looks like hills and brush, some bits of former walls, a couple houses standing still among the empty flattened plots, a strangely vacant layered grave that seems too steep to build upon, a gated graveyard for a church that was knocked down. You need to park along the graveyard by the clearing in the trees, follow the dirt footpath that leads you past the gate's edge down the hill. There is an old green garden hose that you can use to scale down it if the mud is too thick or the snow too deep. You should try to go in the winter when the snow is deep because when you come to the base, the open vent between the stones, you'll see the branches of the trees are covered in a sort of frozen feathered mist collecting from the vent, the drifts of steam. The steam comes from the fire underneath the ground, inside what was a mine, beneath what was a town, that has been burning over 50 years, that will burn for 200 more, long after everyone who lived in this town, when it was a town, is dead. There is a whole world pouring from the vent, a world made of heat. Go in the winter, you will see the sharp change in the atmosphere. The snow just stops, the moss stays green, the air feels tropical, a gust of pale fog, a humid sulfur smell. Another garden hose, this one more faded, coils from a tree before the mouth from which the pale fog is pouring. Like someone was attempting to get right down over into it. Someone who had a need to know the feeling of the fire. That is all you need to know and that is all there is to see. Now you can get back on the new highway and drive on through the other mountain towns, the small white houses, sea foam panels, gold capped steeples, and the rust bright trickle of a creek where people are still living. Like all the buildings in this town, the old high school has been many things. Before it was a school, it was a hospital. During the year of Spanish flu, they set up rows of metal beds in what would be the classrooms and the auditorium. Can you imagine lying in a bed inside the not yet finished future school, inside a line of coughing sheeted forms, your neighbors, relatives, as nurses milled around in masked faces, as men came in with cots to cart the covered forms away. And as the buildings changed, so did its purpose. Beds clean, bodies rotated, and every angle of the space was used. And as afflicted residents surrendered the flu, the basement of the high school hospital became the morgue. 
And as they used to say, time marched on, so the beds were shuffled out, the floors were swept, the necessary desks and chairs installed, chalkboards and benches, skinny bathroom stalls, a pool, a piano, and a grand stage framed in velvet drapes, carved wood, and milk glass lamps. The now decaying former school is a little bit of everything, a site for AA meetings, photo shoots, and school plays. The auditorium is staged with props from Phantom of the Opera, candelabras dripped with wax, a family tomb. Most of the props are real remnants that come with the scenery, the grand piano with its now thick coat of dust sitting before the stage, the filtered greenish light so filled with expectation, something in the rafters, strange sad calls, the fluttering of wings. The man who owns the building leads you on a tour, showing the front rooms where he's reinstalled electric lighting, replaced all the panel glass. Although, of course, he has to keep replacing it whenever people in the town throw bricks and stones. He walks the hallways of uprooted boards, paint flecks and ashy pastel piles, opening the doors to classrooms filled with moss and dripping ceilings. Here's a chalkboard labeled Mrs. Cuff. She's still alive, the owner says, a desk strewn with report cards, which he says people still ask for. There's a tiny alcove room, a little metal frame that you must duck under and almost crawl into to enter. The room is empty, but the owner says when he first found it, there were pillows, folded bedding, and a child's crib. There is the basement level with a gym, the former morgue, which used to be piled ceiling high with garbage, says the owner. There is the half tile, half dirt swimming pool, dark closets filled with boxes, bags, all storage, he says for evicted residents. There's the sound of an old scratchy mewling coming from a closet room that he has set up with a litter box, soft blankets, heating lamps. A bony matted cat walks toward you in a wavy line, collapses in a wet mound, purring, drooling down his chest. That's Sam, the owner says, almost 18. He had a few too many accidents back at the house, so he lives here. You stroke Sam's chin. He quivers, sneezes slime. You get a slick palm, which you wipe along the wall. Open the window on the sixth floor of this high rise. Open the window, air the smoke that is collected in this room the old perfumes of newly polished floors, the hiss of fountain soda, vespers, whispers, fresh paint, velveteen, clean carpet, amber incense, the old perfumes of all these old interiors, you know the ones I mean, the shuttered memories, the sacred spaces of this town, shuttered away from dust, shuttered away from lonely cold, shuttered away from mists of bodies milling quietly, submissively. 
I know, I know, you know already, everybody does. They tell these stories all the time, for years, for generations, all their soil, souls swept, coal stains bleached and rinsed, hands cupped around their mouths so dutifully, hands clasped in their steepled silence, shuddering themselves away from secreted secretions, pills and needles, hills of tainted tissue, tubes of oxygen, the sacred spaces of this town, the marble floors, the molded iron banisters, these grand spaces designed as pristine shelters, echo chambers of their wealth, their own well-being, as reminders of their ownership. Who owns them now, these memories, these shuttered sacred spaces? Not the ones burned down, the ones that lived behind closed curtains, halls of objects, images encased in glass, in photo albums, boxes, coffins, memories, the underground hiss, hums of expectation, ears trained, eyes dilated in the dark, eyes widened, so, so deep here in the layered thick, so deep here in the illness of anticipation, all hushed and waiting for the lights to rise. You need to know who once was there in that house up there off the gravel sliver road in that now empty house just downhill from the high rise in that house listed for $6,000 auctioned off online bought by some stranger in some city sight unseen. You park along the clearing where the road turns red. You follow, as you've been told to, the dirt path through the trees beside the graveyard. You use the garden hose to scale down the hill toward the open vent between the stones, discarded trash, graffiti. You come expecting something terrifying and colossal, boiling toxic geysers, hot steam, glows of underground destruction. You come expecting evidence some explanation, some summation of the sinking in, the strange decay. You get a hill. You get a no trespassing sign. You get a hole inside the ground. You get the faintest traces of that fabled steam. You get the faintest signs of it, the slow burning, the legendary 200 year fire. You are disappointed. Thank you.